off. Log Talk Radio. Here we go. Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannett. What's going on, everybody? Hi, and welcome to episode 47 of the Pond Hunter radio broadcast. I'm your host, Mike Gannon. I'm very happy to share this time with all of you. And in this episode, I have a very special guest coming to us all from across the pond over in England. My guest is a pond professional and expert water gardener. His company services, installs, and consults on koi ponds and water gardens. He's a lecturer on the topic of all things pond and author of one of my favorite pond books called Water in the Garden. I'm probably leaving out a few things, but hopefully we'll get to those. Um, My guest is James Allison. So let's get him on the show. Hey, James, you're on the line. Hello, I'm Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. How are you today? It's good. We've got spring just coming around the corner. They've, the weather's got a little bit milder, so it'll be uh, all ponds 100% go very soon. Very nice. One of my favorite times of year. <laughs> We're still in, in the tail end of winter in my area. I'm in New Jersey, and we're in the tail end of winter. we probably got a few more weeks before uh, spring starts really rearing its head. But I, I can't wait to, to get going. How are things over in England? Uh, I just feel like it's going to get very busy very soon. So uh, normally the phone starts ringing as soon as the sun starts shining. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much the same over here. That's good to know. There's some consistency across the pond. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. So you've been working in the industry for many years, decades. um, And I always ask the professionals, what got you into this business? How did working in the pond industry all start? For you, uh, it's an interesting that you ask that because I do think that we all tend to get in really quite young, um, and it does make me wonder too whether our children these days are, are getting interested in their youth because if they don't get interested when they're young, they may not get interested when they're older. I, I started off guddling in streams as a child, uh, looking for tadpoles with my parents, and and that really what, what got me started off in the interest and then when I was in my teens um, I was away with some a school friend and his parents visiting various gardens I think I'd been brought along to keep him uh, amused while while his parents were busy looking at plants and he was a bit bored doing that and we headed off into parts of the gardens we were visiting where there were ponds and we were looking at the tadpoles and and all the different ponds and when I got home I thought, oh, I'd like a pond at home as well. So I um, dug a shallow depression in the soil in the garden and lined it with fertilizer sacks taped together and filled it with water. And the next day it was empty. 
Um, and my father said to me, if you're going to do something, do it properly. So he said, go away and research this and then, then try again. So I sent off for all the uh, mail order catalogues that were available at the time because there weren't water garden centers to go and visit. And right. um, they all arrived. And then I actually, I was struck down with uh, pneumonia for a while. And while oh. I was sitting in my bed recuperating, all I had to read was water gardening magazines and uh, books and the, uh, the brochures. And lo and behold, by the next year, I'd built my first pond. And uh, it's, it's been all go since then. So to, to boil it all down, you caught a very high fever and you came out of it as a pond guy. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's it's catching, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it's from there I suppose um I kept my interest up. Um when I went to, to college I studied biology and then I went on and did some aquatic biology. Um and while I was still in my back in my teens I joined the, the British Koi Keepers Society, which was just getting going then. So okay. I, I got quite into koi as well. Um, and I thought of going into maybe aquaculture or something like that. But for a couple of years, I was doing other things. And, and then I started writing a few articles for Practical Fishkeeping magazine because there was really very little about ponds written sure. at the time. And um, I, I was looking around for a, a job or something I could do that was of interest. And I ended up moving from where I had been living in Scotland down into the southwest of England in Gloucestershire uh, to start work at a company where they had tropical fish and they were expanding their water garden and koi section and I ended up managing that and that's really uh-huh. when I got into the trade. Interesting. So that, that's a, a, a real direct path essentially that you took and I think it, to go back to what you were saying earlier, I, I think it's interesting too as I talk to other professionals, many of them um, caught the interest as a child like yourself like myself Mm. very similar just Mm. playing around in local waterways and streams and ponds and lakes and creeks um so that's that's interesting that um that's another trait that you carry as well and we do need more Mm. kids involved with this stuff so you made your you had your whole journey you you kind of came into it as a professional um uh at this this um, tropical fish and koi and aquatic plant. So, and that that was kind of if you're part of the BKKS, does that still exist? By the way, it's still going, but um, I'm uh, I'm not currently a member. I mean, I was a member for 20 years or more. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's doing quite as strongly as it used to. I think like a lot of a lot of the the clubs, the internet has has really. Um, because it's been a direct line to people for information, uh, a lot of people just bypass the clubs and try and go straight for the information, which is a little sad because they miss out on the community and on the the learning just by meeting other people in a group and chatting about koi and looking at koi and going to fish shows um, and seeing what's, what's out and about in new products and what all the chat is. So although the Internet is great in many ways, um, I think a lot of the clubs have 
have struggled because um, people want everything instantly and and clubs, they take a bit of time and a little bit of effort to get the best out of them and to put the best back into them. So uh, I learned so much through through the British Koi Keeper Society and um, I mean, I wish them well and hope they, they carry on because you really do need clubs like that to, to get people uh, up and going. And I learned so much from uh, really interesting people when I was, was involved in there. Yes. Um, over here as well, we've really seen a uh, degradation of the different koi clubs and societies over here. Um, you know, they're, they've they've gotten much smaller, and the, the, the British Koi Keeping Society was very formidable um, for quite some time. I mean, it was a very, very mm. strong organization. So you were really involved in the early days of bringing koi into into England, essentially into Europe because that, that's kind of where things caught on here in the United States. I think we grabbed a lot of it over from England and started our, our hobby just a little behind you guys over here. So you were, well, I you were there, I guess, for those early days. I wasn't um, the earliest in by any means. I think there were a, a number of importers who started bringing in koi in the 1960s. Uh, they started off with just the higoi, the, the sort of orange uh, carp, because the Japanese... I think at that time they thought, well, we will just sell what was considered low-grade koi in Japan. They'll do for, for our overseas market where they're not particularly discerning. But very quickly, um, the market wanted better and better fish. And when the koi societies had started having fish shows, then people wanted show-standard fish. So uh, they started bringing in much higher-quality fish in the 1970s. So although you had the garden centers selling um, sort of a general grade koi, which was still coming mainly from Japan at that time. Uh, people wanted better fish, and then you got the specialist koi dealers coming in, um, and companies like uh, Peter Waddington's Infiltration, who who um, boosted interest in, in the specialist fish, and other specialist koi importers, so there was Jeff Claxton, and, and others who were generally working in on a fairly small scale bringing koi in, but it would be, I guess, the late 80s when the market really, really took off and the interest grew and the numbers of high-quality fish coming in from Japan really grew. And at the same time, there were also more general-grade fish uh, coming in from Israel and from America where, uh, where they were being bred as well. So there was a whole range of koi available at that time. And I think the water gardening industry really expanded massively at the end of the 1980s, uh, just a little bit ahead of the, the growth in the USA. And um, koi was a part of that as well. Uh, and that really pushed the whole development of the filtration and all the equipment. So as people learned to look after their koi better, they learned to look after the rest of their water gardens better as well because they had a better understanding of the water quality and what was needed. Right. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. I didn't see koi. I've been a lifelong fish keeper. I've always kept aquarium fish and, and just been interested in fish in general. Um, I didn't see, I think, my first koi. I had heard about them, but I didn't actually see one until um, about 1988 or 89 was, was the first one I saw. I know they were here prior to right. that. But uh -huh, just uh -huh. as a note, that was kind of my first experience with them. And um, it was it was funny because it it was, uh, I was working as a tropical fish retailer. I was working for a tropical fish retailer. And we had gotten these koi in. It was our first shipment we had ever gotten. 
and there was an immediate um, attraction to them. And just the, it was just such a different experience um, with those kind of fish. It was very interesting. Anyway, so let's fast forward now. Uh, you have your own company. You're based in Cheltenham, um, England, um, and your company is called Water Garden Solutions. The website, yeah. by the way, is watergardensolutions.co.uk. Um, tell me about your, your business, your current business. Well, I'd been working at the uh, the fish importer with with uh, the koi and the water gardens and, and a bit of tropical fish for about 13 years, and then I thought, well, I, I I wanted to set up on my own, and originally I was going to do a bit of consultancy and a bit of uh, photography as well, because um, I'd, I'd been doing a little bit of garden photography and a little bit of lecturing as well. Uh, so I started that up uh, in 99, 2000. And within a year or two, it became apparent that really the growth area for me was was actually overseeing the, the ponds, working with landscapers on pond construction and doing uh, the maintenance for customers and the design and planting schemes um, and the follow-up there. And the, uh, the photography began to take a more of a a background role because with the internet coming in the the uh, possibility to make money from photography was shrinking as as all the free free pictures appeared on the internet um yeah. and really since then it it's just grown um slowly but gradually um with all the the pond work and um working in a wider area i still do some lecturing and i still do some consultancy for various companies but uh, the growth area has been working with ponds and the last two or three years have been um, very good indeed uh we did have a bit of a dip in 2008 uh, when the recession hit and probably hit the uk a bit more than it did the, the u.s uh, so we really didn't start to recover until about three years ago, but it's been very good since then, and I, I hope it continues. Yeah, I hope so as well. Um, well, you have a very nice website. I hope people visit it. Visit it um, has a full gallery of beautiful project photos, lots of information on pond equipment, um, a description, of course, of all the services that you offer, and some very helpful FAQs and troubleshooting section, as well as fish health services. Um, but I did see that you have your other website, Aquapic. Is that the one that's more geared towards the photography end of it? Yes, and that really, I'm I'm just not really pushing that now because the uh, the pond stuff has taken over so much. And um, with my time, I'm also I'm still involved a bit with the uh, International uh, Water Lily and Water Gardening Society. So I, I do a bit with them, and I also do a bit with our trade association in the UK called the Ornamental Aquatic Trade Association which uh, represents the, the, the whole of the, the fish and aquatic trades in the UK, um, representing them to government and, um, and dealing with a lot of the legislation that's affecting businesses. Um, oh, wow. So um, I'm involved in, in lots of areas, and, and the picture library really has, has taken, um, taken a step into the background. Um, so that's where I'm, I'm at at the moment, um, and excited by some of the interesting projects coming through. Uh, it's always good when customers have uh, big plans and they're prepared to get you involved at the beginning in the design of uh, whether it's a formal garden with rills and um, formal ponds, lily ponds and fountains and features, or whether they're yeah. looking more for a, an informal 
informal water garden that's fitting in with other planting and in in some cases where they're wanting a specific koi pond so they're really looking at what sort of filtration and things are going to be there to make sure right. that koi are at their best yeah interesting so you and i met while attending um the 2016 international water garden society symposium um down in the yucatan mexico which was a fantastic trip i had such a good time was, there. yeah um and it was funny because, you know, we, I think in just general networking of the event, um, I met you, I was introduced to you, and I'm like, James Allison, I know that name. And I'm thinking, I, I probably just know it from like Facebook or something like that. And I, I have to admit, at first, I didn't realize that you were um, the author of Water in the Garden. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. wish I had the, the book with me for you to sign. Let's talk about the IWGS just for a moment. Tell me about your involvement with the International Water Garden Society? Well, I um, I first uh, got involved there when I went, uh, during the research for my book, uh, way back, it would be back in 1990, uh, I went down to a, a big uh, lily grower on the south coast of England uh, called Bennett's Water Gardens. And uh, the owner there, Norman Bennett, uh, recommended that I join the um, the water Water Lily and Water Gardening Society. At that time, it was called the, the Water Lily Society then. Um, so that was the first time I'd heard about it, and I got the back issues of their journal. And I went to my first symposium in 1991, which was then in Germany. And that was the first time they'd had one outside of a, an English-speaking country. And that was fascinating. Uh, we went right across Germany visiting um, water lily growers and um, visiting fish outlets and water garden centers. So that was fascinating. And a lot of Americans came over then, too, to see what was going on in Europe. Um, and that was a real introduction to the community at the, uh, the Water Gardening Society. And I've been involved ever since. I ended up um, acting as their, their journal editor for a few years. And uh, I'm still involved, and it's still an, uh, just an excellent way to find out about water gardens and water lilies and a great bunch of people as well. They really are. I was so pleased um, and, and happy that I, that I actually did finally attend one of the symposiums. Um, I've been, you know, aware of the IWGS for a long time, but going down and actually meeting a lot of the, the um, members was such an enjoyable experience. Um, you know, the people are very adventurous so it's not just about yeah. water lilies. I mean, there, there's people hiking down into, you know, the, the backlands of Mexico looking for water lilies. And so it's, it's amazing, um, that whole group. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to be involved with it. I, I hope I, I know the uh, symposium will be at Longwood Gardens this year in 2017. I, I hope I get to see you there. Have you been to Longwood before? I have not. I can't wait to go. I've been um, with the with the water gardening group. It would be oh, at least uh, ten years ago now, and uh, it's a fabulous uh, garden, um, very very well kept, and they have a, a superb quality uh, water garden display where they really manage to get the the most blooms out of lilies that I've ever seen because they they fertilize very heavily and they manage to get just amazing blooms. So it's a photographer's paradise. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it should be very good indeed. Yeah. I can't wait. 
Um, so let's talk, talk about your book a little bit, um, Water in the Garden, which really is one of my favorite um, pond books. I have it. I have it in front of me at the moment. It's it's always on my bookshelf. Um, after the symposium, I did reread it because <laughs> it had been a couple wow. years since I read it, <laughs> and it reminded me what a really really practical advice book that it is. It was published in '91, but the the information still holds up really well. It's easy to read and understandable, has lots of great photos. I mean, it's, it's a great book just for the photos, but you go into all sorts of different things, design, waterfalls, wildlife ponds, all sorts of stuff. What got you to, I know it takes a lot of passion, and I know it's not easy writing a book. So what got you to write a book? What drove you? I think... Um... I was writing a few articles for the Fishkeeping magazine at the time, and people were asking questions. And I, I was a little disappointed with the, the quality of books that were around at the time. There were some books that were really good on the, the range of plants, but when it came to the practical, how do you build the pond and uh, how do you get the best out of it, there really weren't very many books around. And what was there was very much pushing one particular company's products or another particular company's pumps. And I felt that there just needed to be some good information out there. Um, so I approached uh, one of the companies that would had started producing some sort of general fish keeping and general water gardening books. And they'd brought out a little tiny guidebook to water gardens, which was a, a really good little introductory guide. And, and I suggested writing something perhaps about filtration. And they wrote back to me and said, well, why don't you um, do something that will fit into our encyclopedia format and, and do a, a bigger book on water gardening? Uh, so that's how, how it, it it started off. Um, and then I had a very short deadline. Um, so I was busy working at the time in the water gardening center. And they gave me the go-ahead, I think, at the beginning of April, which was just the beginning of our busy season. And they wanted it all written within six months, um, oh, and most of it written within three months. So I had to spend every minute of my spare time doing the writing. And, and then a bit of uh, helping. Well, they had a, an editor, and I had to approve all the different edits. And then... I supplied some of the photos and had to approve the rest. So it was a, a, a real rush to get everything done, but I'm glad it came out as, as well as it did. And, um, and it, you know, it, it, it went much further than I expected, so that's, that's really good. Um, and it obviously did very well in, in the States as well, which um, was, was very satisfying for me. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that so many people read it and enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And maybe one day I'll get round to doing another, but uh, not not a task to be undertaken lightly. Yeah, no, it it um it really is. It's a very very solid book. I highly recommend it. It can still be found on Amazon. So you are a pond expert. You literally wrote a book on ponds. <laughs> um, what are three things that you would recommend to someone who's just beginning or planning to have a pond in their life? That's a good good question. Um, I think uh, I know when I'm um, advising gardening groups who are folk who are wanting to start out on a pond, 
Uh, one of the, the sort of the three things I often go for uh, is the right place, the right design, and getting the right balance in the pond. Um, when I say the right place, I've been to too many gardens where people have put a pond in the very wrong place and they're they're wondering why things aren't working and that's where they may have put the, the pond right underneath a tree so it's constantly filling with leaves or they've built it in a, a real depression in the garden which is where you'd expect to find water but of course the depressions in the garden that's where all the dirty water runs after a rainstorm and the area can flood um, so I, I advise people to try and build their pond away from, from overhanging trees so they're not going to get uh, too many leaves in and they're also going to get a reasonable amount of sunlight so that they, the plants will grow well and not in the, the deepest point in the garden but maybe a bit higher up in the garden so it still looks as though it's in a lower area but it's not in the area that's going to flood uh, and that also overcomes problems when the, the water table is high of of this uh, what we call hippoing in the trade where water comes up underneath sure. the liner and lifts the liner um, yeah so putting it in the right place to to actually enjoy the pond because if they're going to get reflections from the pond and the the reflections can bring a lot of light into the garden so if they can see the pond from their house then there's all the advantages of bringing in those reflections into the house and the ripples from the water movement and then yeah. having the pond near enough that they can enjoy the sound of the cascades and see the wildlife, the, the birds that come to bathe at the pool edge and the, the frogs and other, other animals that are coming to visit and the dragonflies in the summer. Um, so having it in the right place is critical. Um, and then it's making sure that they've given about the right amount of space because I think so many people start off almost too small or maybe just a little bit too hesitant and they put in something that by the time all the plants have grown up you can hardly see the water so right. um it's, it's getting the proportions right in the garden so it's not going to get overlooked in the garden but at the same time it's not going to dominate unless they particularly want it to so that's right. getting it in the right place and and then it moves on to the right design um in Britain, a lot of people have fairly small gardens and they're very close up to their house. So they're often going for a fairly formal uh, approach because they've got four close walls to their garden to build in. And in some right. of those cases, they'll build a formal pond that matches the, the lines of the nearby house. Whereas those who have a bit more space and a slightly more wild look to their garden, then they go more for the informal look that uh, runs on into flower borders or lawns um, with more sweeping shapes that can follow any contours in the land and, right. um, and then maybe build in some cascades or, or streams or waterfalls that, that suit that. Uh, and I think often customers underestimate uh, how important the edging to the pond is because the way the pond merges into its surrounds really depends on that, what choice of edge they choose. And yeah, if they're choosing a formal, a formal stone edge um, with cut, nice cut stone for the edge of the pond, then that can really push up the price of the pond to maybe more than they were expecting, uh, whereas some of the more simple edges and planted edges can be a slightly cheaper to put in, but they may be slightly higher maintenance in the long run, keeping that edge neat and tidy and, and stopping plants going where they don't want it. 
So yeah. that's the design aspect of the the outline of the pond. But the design, it doesn't stop there because there's the design below the waterline as well. So it's making sure that there are shelves in the right areas if they want to plant uh, marginal plants in containers on those shelves and that they've got depths that are deep enough for the fish, especially yep. if they want extra depth to protect their fish from herons and other other birds that might try and pick fish out of shallow water. Very important. Yep. Um, and in again, in small gardens where it's difficult to move earth around, uh, there's always the option of raising the pond slightly uh, so that you're not having to dig as much soil to get the depth of water. And that actually lifts the water up to closer to your eye line. And then you can put a seating edge around the edge of the pond. And that's very popular in small back gardens. So people can actually sit on the edge of the pond and look at the plants. And they're a bit closer if they want to smell the lilies or see the fish. Um, so yeah. raise, raising the pond is always a good option in those cases. Um, and it's also thinking what sort of level of maintenance they want in the long run for the pond, because some customers have amazing ideas of what they'd like to do, but then they, they're almost too ambitious and underestimate that if they have large, large beds of plants around the pond and lots and lots of different pumps and water features, that they're going to have to spend a little bit more time maintaining it. And right. in this day and age, everyone wants as low maintenance as possible. And you can do that with, with equipment, but at the same time, it, it's designing it so it's not going to be too cumbersome to maintain in the long run. Absolutely. Uh, and that's where I often get called in seeing other landscapers who may have put in a pond where they haven't really been used to dealing with ponds, and they've put the pond in without really thinking how things are going to be maintained in the long run. Um, and that from my point of view, it's a help if I can get involved early on, because if my team are maintaining a pond, then obviously I'm going to build it so it's easy for them to get in and out of the pond and easy for them to get to the pumps uh, for sure. maintenance. Uh, whereas I know some people have had pumps uh, plumbed in with solid plumbing and without disconnecting everything, you can't take the pump out for cleaning. Uh, right or getting your waders on or your, your scuba diving suit to get in. And that really just isn't practical in the long term. So it's right. important to make things easy and practicable in the long term. Right. Um, and I suppose the third thing after the right place and the right design is getting the right balance in the pond for the long term benefit of the, the plants and the fish. And, and that is getting the right numbers of plants in there so they're going to use up the nutrients and stop too much algae and making sure they don't build up their fish stocks too rapidly so that the pond has time to adjust to the stocks and making sure they've got the right filtration if they've got a lot of fish so that it's going to keep the water in good condition for the fish. Uh, and again, if people want lots of fish, they mustn't underestimate the cost of a good filter system because of right. the koi pond in particular, a really good filter system can cost almost as much as the rest of the pond put together. Um, uh, but that will make things good in the long term, and it's money well spent making sure that they're going to have uh, an easily maintainable filter system that's going to keep their fish happy. Right, and it gets rid of a lot of frustration in pond keeping um, as well to have a good filter system. Oh, definitely. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose we, we've got all the different range now. There's so many options on the market. So in our general range, we'll use often ones based on sponge cartridges with, with simple pre-filters. And then in the koi market, um, we're using sieves and bead filters or drum filters and moving beds or just larger versions of the, the simple systems used in, in garden ponds. Um, right. But they've, they've come on leaps and bounds in the last 10 years uh, and all the various forms of automation as well, which really make things a lot easier for customers who, who don't necessarily want to, to get out and have their hands in, in among the plumbing system every weekend. Um, they right. want to be able to, to have things simpler and more straightforward uh, so that they can spend more time just enjoying their fish. Yeah, and that's really what it's all about. I think most people who are who are um, installing a pond and bringing a pond into their their lives aren't looking for the maintenance. They want the enjoyment of it. So those are some great Definitely. tips to get people to be able to be what I would call successful in pond keeping. Um, so very nice tips. Those those are great. That was awesome. And um, James, thank you very much for coming on to the show as a guest. I appreciate you calling no in. Um, good, and, good. Uh, you know, for round two of our, <laughs> of our interview. And I hope you'll join me again sometime. I, I hope I see you this summer at the symposium and um, appreciate your time. Excellent. Very good to speak to you, Mike. All the very best. Okay. Same to you. Thank you so much, James. Take very good care. Bye-bye. Okay. That was James Allison, everybody, pond expert author, lecturer, businessman, and just a really nice person to boot. And you can find James on LinkedIn. Um, his website is watergardensolutions.co.uk. Um, and Aquapic is another website of his if you want to check that out. It's kind of a little secondary website. So thanks for sticking around, everybody. I'm your host, Mike Gannon. I'm the owner of Full Service Aquatics, a koi pond and water garden design and build firm based in New Jersey, USA. Um, my phone number is 908-277-6000. If I can help any of you with a pond issue, please reach out to me. I'm happy to help. I got your back. And you can find more Pond Hunter on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Got some all new videos. We have a new video section where our uh, podcasts, like the one you're listening to, are being converted to video. And now you can listen to Pond Hunter on YouTube as well, podcast and iTunes, and of course, blogtalkradio.com. So keep it pondy, everybody, and I will catch you next time on the Pond Hunter Radio. You have been listening to the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, the Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio, the Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. That's right, you aquatically obsessed. Keep pondy and take care, everybody.